1: Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about Samuel Kirkland, missionary to the Seneca and Oneida tribes of New York. Kirkland's story is not one that you're going to hear a lot about, and if you do, it's been revised for a modern historical spin. And for this episode, I went back to a book written by his grandson in the 1800s that pulls from his journals and other correspondence. You can find it on Amazon. I read this one for free on Google Books. I'll link both in the description. Samuel Kirkland was born in Connecticut in 1741 as the 10th child of 12. His father was a pastor, and his grandfather had immigrated from Scotland. In his biography, his grandson notes that boyhood must have been where he gained all his estimable virtues. It's a very detailed biography. He goes to Eliza Wilcox Moore Charity School, which was founded for both colonial boys and Native American boys. Wheelock will be mentioned a few times here because he's very influential in Samuel's life. He's one of those guys like George Whitfield, the famous Great Awakening preacher who will come up a time or two as well, who is always doing something really important. Samuel was very likable in school. He received several letters from friends which praised his marked intelligence and moral qualities. People wrote so elegantly back then, I want to show you an example of what I mean. Here a friend writes: Give me the honor of your acquaintance, and the delights and satisfaction of your friendship. Nothing is wanting to my happiness and improvement but what a gentleman of your age and character could do. I invite you to spend the coming summer in my room. Let there be between us the freedom and intimacy of brothers. My acquaintance in these parts with gentlemen of note, on my father's account, shall be yours, and perhaps some worldly advantage may accrue therefrom. If that were written today, it would just say, Hey, you want to hang out? His sophomore year, he transferred to Princeton at the urging of Wheelock. Princeton was where you went if you wanted to go into ministry, and Samuel had had decided a while back that he was going to work among the Native Americans in New York, more well known as the Iroquois Confederacy or the Six Nations. The Six Nations were formed somewhere between 1570 and 600, They were a democratic government that consisted of, as you may have guessed, six nations, and they were very powerful and political and cordial, and everything was done very by the book, but with grace. Even so, there was a great need for the gospel among them. David Brainerd had been among the six nations some 20 years before, and he's actually in an episode I did a few months ago, I think, at this point. And if you haven't listened to it, I will link it in the description as well. There'll actually probably be a lot of links in the description this week. But anyway, it's a good episode, and I encourage you to check it out. David Brainerd had had some success among the Six Nations, but not among the Seneca tribe, which is where Samuel wanted to go. They were the largest, most powerful, and most intimidating of the Six Nations tribes. And here's a quote about Samuel's resolve to go among the Seneca. With the exception of some occasional efforts among the Mohawks and Oneidas, no effort had been made from New England to introduce Christianity among the nations of this confederacy. They seemed inclined, especially the Senecas, to oppose and reject all offers of the kind from Protestants. And before the bold and hazardous adventure of Mr. Kirkland, no Protestant missionary had ever penetrated these forests or visited this tribe. This gentleman was in various respects particularly qualified for the arduous task. He possessed uncommon constitutional strength and vivacity, a mind fearless in danger, a great fund of benevolence, and a heart devoted to the cause of the Redeemer. He graduated from Princeton in 1765 at the age of 24, but by then he had already been with the Seneca for eight months. Eliza Wheelock pulled some strings and had the committee grant him his degree, but let's rewind a little bit to see how he gets to the Seneca. He goes to Johnson Hall, a mansion inhabited by Sir William Johnson, Britain's agent of Indian affairs. He's been among the Six Nations for many, many years, and he was very well respected and even beloved, and he was even adopted by the Mohawks. Samuel is tasked with taking a man from the Delaware tribe to work among the Mohawk as a schoolteacher. When Samuel arrives, a chieftain and Christian named Good Peter tells him he's worried he's going among the Seneca too early. He doesn't think they're ready for the gospel yet. Instead of being discouraged, he's resolved to go all the more. If not him, then who? And if not now, then when? He goes back to Johnson Hall and waits for some guides to accompany him to the Seneca. Eventually, in the middle of January, two guides arrived. He heads out with them on a journey in the dead of winter, which takes them 23 days and at least 100 or more miles. They had to trek in snowshoes because the snow was so deep, and Samuel was not used to traveling like that, and so his was swelled up continually and needed rest and treatment. They pass through the Oneida, who also told them that maybe they should wait to go among the Seneca. But Samuel tells them that God has tasked him with this mission to reach them, and so he carries on. Finally, they reach the first Seneca city. They stop outside the town and wait for a messenger to come and ask them their business. They're let in and led into the meeting hall, and Samuel is warmly greeted and welcomed. Within a few weeks, he's been adopted by the head chief and his family, saying he will be a father to him, his wife a mother, and his children, brothers, and sisters to him. It was a very gracious gesture and one that demonstrated utmost trust. Because the chief's house was full, he was invited to stay with another Seneca leader and his wife. And he was welcomed by his host and they enjoyed teaching him the language and customs. Samuel wanted to make sure that he understood the Seneca culture before he even began to fulfill his duties as a missionary. He made remarkable strides in the language by utilizing two important phrases. What do you call this? And say it again. Then suddenly, his host drops dead. He'd been completely healthy the night before, and rumors begin to swirl. His adoptive father tells him to keep his head high and don't worry. He's taken into their home, where his siblings guard him zealously. A few days later, his adoptive brother shoves a pistol in his hand and tells Samuel they're going partridge hunting. Instead, they hole up in an abandoned hut on the outskirts of town in the woods. Each evening, their sister brings them food. This continues for several days until he's led back to the camp, and everyone is happy to see him, and he was really confused. He tried not to ask questions and hoped they would tell him what happened, and they never did. Now, several weeks later, a trader comes through, and he's a trusted friend of the Seneca. Samuel figured he'd know something, so he comes to him in the middle of the night to ask, and this guy gives him the scoop. His adoptive father defends him. People die all the time. We don't know why. It's no big deal. It's fine. I mean, it's sad, but it's fine. And another chief says that Samuel practices dark magic and the Great Spirit is punishing them. With the colonists come their book, the Bible, and they already have knowledge of the Great Spirit. They don't need that book. The Great Spirit put it in their heads. They don't want to lose their heritage and become enslaved of the Africans the Dutch keep. And the Dutch, the Dutch cause problems everywhere pretty much you can see it in africa north america and japan they were very poor representatives of christianity and so if you're looking through a lot of historical accounts and anywhere the dutch have been creates a problem with the native culture because the dutch kind of go here's christianity but here's also slavery and all these other terrible things so they were a real thorn in the side to missionaries who wanted to do things the right way so this chieftain goes hey we should kill him but then they ask the widow, and the widow says, no, nothing weird was going on. He wasn't practicing any kind of black magic. So they ask her, did you see him, like, get into your husband's ear and, like, blow stuff in his face or whisper weird things in his ear? And she's like, no, nothing like that. He was great, fantastic. The only thing he did was he'd get on his knees each night and pray on his bed after we had gone to sleep. He was great. We loved him. And it's her testimony that clears him. And not long after he'd learned of the effort it took to save his life, famine came to the land. And they have to hold and ration meat for so long that by the time they finish it, it's long since gone bad. Samuel got so sick that his adoptive father, his 90-year-old mother, trekked a mile in the winter just to take care of him. He relates a story about watching his siblings carve up a bear. And the meat was already streaked with green, and as they lifted out a chunk of meat, tons of maggots fell to the floor. They expressed concern that he won't be able to eat it because he's not accustomed to bad meat. But they cook it and they hand it to him anyway because what other choice is there? And it's accompanied by two small bowls of salt. And he begins to cry and close his eyes as he takes each bite, rolling it in the salt, intermingled with his tears. He had a really rough 16 months, and when he returned to Johnson Hall, he was unrecognizable. He was so haggard and thin. Aside from Sir Johnson, no one else knew more about the Seneca. His children encouraged him to write a memoir of his time there, and he didn't get very far before he died, and they regretted not asking him sooner when he was in better health. His personal journals are so scattered that it would be difficult for anyone who was not him to decipher them fully. He left the Seneca after 16 months, maintaining a close relationship with the adoptive family, but unable to make any progress in sharing the gospel. He faced a lot of opposition and hardships, both physical and spiritual. He returned to Connecticut to be ordained as a Presbyterian minister, and he was also commissioned as a missionary to the Native Americans by the Society in Scotland for Propagating Christian Knowledge. This was the same group which sent David Brainerd. George Whitfield was able to encourage him after he was commissioned and helped strengthen his resolve. It was a tough year and a half, and he was about to head back out again. Whitfield was a close personal friend of Eliza Wilcock, and in turn a good friend of Samuel. Samuel chose this time to go to the Oneida people in the center of the Six Nations in upper New York State. He'd established many good relationships there among the Oneida while he was with the Seneca, and they were very interested in the gospel. When he arrives, he sets about building his own longhouse, which took him about 70 days to complete. And within a few months, he sees many of the Oneida come to Christ. They stay in the faith and help Samuel in his ministry for the rest of his days. Many families came to Christ as well. They were great sources of support when people came against him and tried to malign his character. He writes a letter about some of the things people were saying about him. My extreme poverty and lowly way of living greatly hurt my character and influence with the Indians. They began to look upon me as a poor, worthless fellow who could not get a living anywhere else. Or I should not come here and live so much like I do. At the same time, they conceive a mean opinion of the design, as not worthy of any expense. True, I have lived more as a dog than a Christian minister in the greater part of the time I have resided in the wilderness. Many a time would I have begged upon my knees for a bone I have so often seen flung to a dog. My hard labor and fatigue have sorely broken my nature. If I should live any considerable time, I have no reason to expect a sound, robust constitution. I have not slept a night these ten months free from pain in my bones, and lately a subtle pain in my breast. He also mentions that his attempted character assassination came not only from members of the Oneida, but also among the Dutch Christians, and he really only has one thing to say about them in response. Their unchristian conduct is quite beyond the conception of a New England Christian. And that's quite the burn, I think. Despite the trials, he's able to start a thriving church and a school. He goes back to Connecticut for a bit for health reasons, and while he's there in 1769 at the age of 28, he marries Wheelock's niece, Drusha Bingham. And I'm not sure, I can't say this with with any kind of certainty, but it seems that she is maybe related to Hiram Bingham's family a little bit earlier, obviously, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, I covered him in an episode back about Hawaii, actually, and it was very interesting. But... The Binghams, they're all in the same area. How common of a name is Bingham? Maybe it is. But anyway, if you want to go look that up and see if you can find it for me, I would be thrilled. When Jerusha returns with Samuel to the Oneida, the Christians there are overjoyed and welcome her with open arms, making her feel like part of a family. George Whitfield writes to her and tells her that he greatly admires the work she's doing, and it's a really sweet letter. Jerusha gives birth to two twin sons named John Thornton and George Whitfield, and they are adopted at once into the tribe. In 1773, war was brewing and the Six Nations were experiencing some interpersonal issues. Samuel and Jerusha decided that it's best for her to take the boys to Massachusetts until things calmed down. And they didn't return until 1783. Shortly before the Revolutionary War, Sir Johnson, agent of the Indian Affairs, dies. His death could not have come at a worse time. After all the time he'd with the Six Nations, he put their interest above those, the Crown. His son-in-law, Gus Johnson, comes in to replace him, and he's just the worst. He's extremely loyal to Britain. He's Episcopalian, which if you're like me and didn't know what that really means, uh, they are an offshoot of the Church of England. And he hates Samuel for two reasons. One, he's a patriot, and two, he's a Puritan. He tries very hard to defame him and have Samuel removed from his post. He tells the Oneida that Kirkland isn't a true minister of the gospel. He's a descendant of people who killed the king across the sea, and he holds dangerous doctrines. Kirkland finds it too ridiculous to even bother with Johnson. And luckily, he doesn't have to. The Oneida gather together to write a stern rebuke to Johnson, and it reads, We love and esteem our father, the minister. He lives in great peace among us. He does not do anyone harm. He meddles not with state affairs. He labors hard in doctrine and teaches us the pure word of God. And he conducts like a true minister of Jesus Christ. We therefore love our minister, and some among us begin to embrace religion. We do not desire his removal, nor are we willing to part with him. And should we do such a thing as to drive him off, we would consider it no other than saying to God, Depart from us. We therefore beg you to desist from any further attempts to drive him off. And that pretty much ends Johnson's attempt, at least from that angle. He woke up in a minute, so he's not entirely done. But in 1775, Samuel was tasked by the Continental Congress to be a negotiator between them and the Six Nations. He also served as a chaplain to the Continental Army. Sadly, he didn't keep any journals during the war, so we don't really know much of what he did during the war. Congress really wanted the Six Nations to stay neutral in the coming war, and it seemed like that was actually going to happen. In every other war, they sided with the British, but it looked like maybe not this time. That is, until Guy Johnson got involved. He began promising the tribes everything under the sun if they fought for the British. Only the Oneida and Tuscarora stayed neutral, so four out of six decided to fight with the British. But soon the Oneida and Tuscarora begged to help the colonists, and so served side by side with the soon-to-be foundling nation. After the war, Samuel returned to the Oneida and continued his work as a missionary and as a negotiator for the rest of his life, until his death in 1808 at the age of 78. He founded the Hamilton-Oneida Academy, named after the founding father, Alexander Hamilton. The academy later became Hamilton College. An Italian explorer came to visit him in the 1790s and remarked in awe that he had accumulated an in-depth list of over 200 Iroquois languages. Samuel lived a life of service to the Lord which is so incredible, it's different, but it's incredible and it's been forgotten but there is one thing we do know that thankfully hasn't been entirely forgotten and shows us just how beloved that he was, and that is his friendship with Oneida Chief Skanando, who led the Oneida and Tuscarora during the war. And I'll read from the book here. Mr. Kirkland became acquainted with Skanando when he first went into Indian country in 1764, and from that time to his death an intimate and dear personal friendship subsisted between the two of them. So strong was his attachment of the Indian chief to Mr. Kirkland, that he often expressed a desire and attained from the family a promise that he should be buried near the minister, his father, whom he survived several years. That, as he said, he might cling to the skirts of his garments and go up with him at the great resurrection. When he died in 1816 at the age of 110, his remains were conveyed to Clinton, where a funeral service was held in the church and deposited as he desired. The Christian minister and the Indian warrior now sleep side by side in an orchard on what was Mr. Kirkland's homestead this was a well-timed although accidentally timed episode just in time for the 4th of July so that worked out really well one of the things I love doing with this show is discovering people who have all but been forgotten and their contributions to the kingdom are unknown podcasting makes them so much more accessible to the modern audience and I really enjoyed doing this with you I read the dusty tomes so you don't have to. Should that be the new tagline? Maybe? I don't know. If you enjoy learning more about Forgotten Martyrs and Missionaries, head over to Apple Podcasts and click that five-star and leave a review. And as always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.